Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hey there, welcome to the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast. I'm your host, Betsy Jewell. It's a new year and I'm excited to bring you new episodes with some pretty amazing guests, beginning right now. My guest today is Dr. Denise Pope. Denise is a senior lecturer at Stanford University Graduate School of Education and is also the co-founder of Challenge Success, a school reform nonprofit. Additionally, Denise is the author of Doing School, How We Are Creating a Generation of Stressed Out, Materialistic, and Miseducated Students. Dr. Pope lectures nationally on parenting techniques and pedagogical strategies to increase student health, engagement, and integrity. During our discussion, we talk about the importance of student feedback to improve their health, well-being, sense of belonging, and engagement with learning. Denise shares some results from the Fit Over Rankings research brief that she contributed to, and spoiler alert, where you go to college doesn't make a difference. Denise reinforces what I keep saying over and over again. There is not one path to success. Whether you are an educator, a parent, or someone who cares about the future well-being of teens and young adults, this is an episode you will not want to miss. Now let's get started. Hi, Denise. Thanks so much for being here today on the High School Hamster Wheel podcast. I am excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yes, thank you for being here. Um, I, like I told you before we started recording, I've been following you and watching you in videos and reading some of the things that you've produced. Um, and I, I just continue to cheer out loud. I'm like, yes, <laughs> somebody's doing such important work for students and for parents. I think. As I said, too, I think parents want this kind of information, want resources to help guide their kids better. And um, I wouldn't say there's not a lot out there. There's not a lot of quality stuff out mm. there. So for th- thanks for doing what you do. But before we start um, the actual interview, would you just take a minute and introduce yourself to my audience just a little bit about who you are and what you do? Sure, sure. Um I'm Denise Pope. I am a senior lecturer at the Stanford University Graduate School of Education and co-founder of Challenge Success, which I'm sure we'll we'll talk about and get into. Um, and currently, I, I I am still very connected with Challenge Success. The other co-founders are not, but I am a um, strategic advisor on a daily basis to Challenge Success. So, can we talk a little bit about your journey from? teenager to where you are now? When you were a teen, were you engaged in school? Did you love school? What What was your thought about that? I was, I grew up, I was a reader. So I was a kid who always had her head in a book. Um, and I loved books. I loved reading. I was pretty curious. And so in school, 
I was pretty happy. Um, my favorite subjects were English and history. And yeah, I was, I mean, my kids would now say, yeah, oh, mom, you were a nerd. You were a total nerd. I was, I was. And, <laughs> and, and I was really happy to go to school. I had a school that was, the teachers were really engaging. We did a lot of experiential learning. We would act out things from history. We would do projects. We would, um, it, it was really, learning was really fun and exciting. So I was very, very lucky. And it's one of the things that made me, one, want to become an English major in college. I couldn't believe that I, you know, people were telling me I had to read these books uh, for credit because I probably would have read them anyway. And then really to become an English teacher in high school. So it, it set me up to be an educator because I had such great role models. That's great. So you knew early on, which is so not typical, right? I mean, uh, of all the teens I talked to, they have kind of no clue what direction they want to go in. I didn't know I wanted to be a teacher. I, I actually thought I was going to maybe go into journalism or um, at one point I looked into children's television. I mean, like, so I was like in college, I was sort of all over. But when I got to really my senior year, I looked back at the things that brought me joy, being a camp counselor, being um, a resident assistant in the dorms, uh, you know, doing service and really teaching. And so I thought, oh, all the stars are aligning. I should, I should be a teacher. I should be a high school teacher. And did anyone ask you that? Like what brings you joy or, or what have you done in the past? Or did, did you just no, come up with that on your own? I kind of did. I mean, this was way back before there were, I mean, I think we probably had a career center at the college, but I didn't visit it. Um, it was, you know, I think now you hear a lot more about helping kids find their path based on things that they enjoy. And if you can be lucky enough that the things that you really like doing also serve the world and allow you to make a livable wage that's the trifecta, right? Um, right. So, right. and I will say as a high school teacher, it, it, it was a livable wage for, you know, but it was, you don't get paid a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> nope. You still don't get paid a lot of money. You, you, you don't, you don't, but, um, but I loved it and I loved uh, teaching and I was actually really frustrated that I couldn't reach all of my students as an English teacher in a, in a large public high school. Um, I had, I don't know, I think I had like a hundred and almost 160 students that I was responsible for. And I wasn't reaching all of them. And I was frustrated. And I thought, something about this is not working. And I wasn't sure what was really going on in their heads, because you see them every day, but you don't have those one on ones. And if they're not participating, you don't really know what's going on. So that's, that's what led me to sort of get more curious about the world of education and what was and wasn't working with the system. And at what point did you write the book, your book? So the book's titled Doing School, How We Are Creating a Generation of Stressed Out, Materialistic, and Miseducated Students. Were you still teaching then? No. So I actually decided to go back to graduate school and get my PhD in education. This was sort of a problem was so vexing to me in my head that I thought I need to go back and really dive deep and figure out what's wrong with the system and what's working. And so my, for my dissertation, I did what's called an ethnography, and I chose to shadow five high-achieving kids at a pretty 
at a high school that had a really good reputation to find out what was working. I wanted to see a system that was working so I could study it. And in doing the qualitative research and doing the ethnography, I would shadow the kids. I would meet them, you know, at the beginning of the school day, go all the way through the school day, go to some of their extracurricular activities with them. They would go home and do homework. I would go home and write up my field notes. And they each helped me write, you know, their own chapter um, of the dissertation. And um, that's where I found out that it looked like it was working, right? These were kids who were getting pretty good grades, who were active and involved in school. Uh, to everyone on the outside, it looked like everything was just fine and dandy, but the kids were admitting to me they were cheating, they were stressed, they weren't sleeping. There was a pretty big price to pay to try to get the grades and the test scores and the accolades and the extracurriculars and whatnot that they felt they needed in order to succeed. And so that was sort of this big aha that maybe even for the kids who it looks like the system is working, maybe the system actually isn't working for them either. Yeah. And would you say that that's still true today? Yes. I very much so still true today. The difference I think, and it's been, you know, 20 years, I published the book in 2001. I had to wait for all the kids to graduate high school because I did talk about cheating and other things that they probably didn't want made public. And, 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 and no one knows the names and all of that. It's confidential. But, um, so in 2001, when I published it, it was sort of like ringing this alarm bell, like, hey, there's mental health issues going on. There's lack of engagement going on. There's some problems, even with the kids who look like they're making it. Now, 20 years later, there's this very similar problems, but I don't have to convince people. People now are very aware of the mental health crisis of our teens. They're very aware of the tolls that the system puts on them. So uh, that's the real difference in 20 years is I think there's more people out there who are working on this problem, who see it as a problem and who understand it. So you must have been surprised by the findings. I was surprised. I, I wasn't, well, remember, because I taught high school, so I saw that disengagement, but I was surprised at how widespread it was at a place where I really thought things were working really well. Okay. And have you followed up with any of these students beyond their high school graduation? So I did. Um, at the very end of the Doing School book, there's a little like, where are they now? But that was, you know, a long time ago. Um, the, I can say that I followed uh, two of them to graduate school. So they went all the way through college and then they went to graduate school. Uh, one went to business school. One got an MSW, uh, social work degree. Um, and I lost touch with, uh, and one went into business, um, and then I lost touch with with the other two. And now I'm not in touch with, you know, any of them, which is a weird feeling because they're in their probably 40s, right? Something like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or late 30s. Yeah, no, probably yeah, 40s. late 30s. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Um, but what, for then, for 20 year or so years ago, that had to be pretty eye-opening for a lot of people. Yeah, it was. And, and, and the, here's what happened. So the book came out and, um, the, a person who was a head counselor at the Stanford health center at the time read the book and called me into his office. And he said, look, we have a ton of kids here at Stanford who are the aftermath of the kids in your book. 
They are very similar to the kids in your book. They're stressed, they're struggling, they have ulcers, they're cheating. And he said, and we're not alone. We're seeing this across the college landscape. And I think we need to create an intervention. Mm-hmm. And I, I had just had like my, I think my second or third kid at that point. And I thought, I don't, I don't, one, I don't know that I can do that. And two, I don't have the answers to the intervention. I was just ringing an alarm bell, right? This is kind of right. what I'm, I'm a new, newly minted PhD here. And he said, well, you're not going to do it alone. Let's call a meeting of a bunch of different people in the psychology department and uh, the people who deal with academic integrity issues at Stanford and here at the health center and the school of education. And let's get together and really try to create an intervention. And that was the start of what eventually became challenge success. Originally, we just made up the name on a spot and it was called SOS Stressed Out Students. Um, Long story short, there's other groups that have that same acronym and people were getting confused. And so we ended up changing the name and we wanted it to be a more positive name anyway. And I like challenge success. I I think it perfectly suits the work that you're doing. So perfect segue. Um, So that's how that got started. You co-founded it. Yeah. Um, so you, can you talk a little bit for those who don't know about the organization, you know, what the mission is, what type of work you do? Sure. So um, we are, it started out as sort of a lab in, you know, because I was teaching at Stanford, it sort of was my, my teaching and research lab. We actually turned it into its own nonprofit. So it's a standalone nonprofit affiliated with the School of Education at Stanford. We're still a center at the School of Education. And our our goal is really to elevate student voice and help communities, parents, families, and schools with a research-based, equity-based practices to improve student health, well-being, belonging, and engagement with learning. So if you are a school, you can come to us and we put on programs and conferences and workshops, and we help you with a problem. If you say, hey, we've got a lot of kids struggling with mental health, what are things we can do? We also have resources for the general community, parents, educators, coaches, counselors, uh, anyone who works with kids, really helping to translate the research around best practices, but also doing our own research and creating some of those uh, positive interventions as well. When you say schools, do you mean high schools and colleges? Well, we work primarily with K-12 schools. So okay. what was interesting at that meeting at Stanford was a lot of the people there said, you know what, a lot of the habits of college students start much earlier. So if we if we target our intervention at college students, which is still really important, and I, I, I served on the board of the Mental Health and Wellness Task Force at Stanford, and, uh, you know, we put like... Um, the suicide hotline on the back of every student ID now, right? That was so. So we, it's really important to do things for college students. But because of my background, challenge success is really focused on uh, pre-K through grade twelve, and our school programs specifically are more middle school and high school based. Are you getting a lot of interest or a lot of adoption? Yeah. So we've we've worked with, I think, over six hundred schools now in twelve years. Wow making really specific, concrete changes at the schools. And I'll, I'll give you some examples. And I know you're in New Jersey. We work with schools in New Jersey too. Oh, um, great. There are things that impact students' mental health and well-being and engagement with learning that schools maybe don't even realize. And I'll give an example of the schedule. So if you are running around, like, with, you know, you start school super early, which is not 
really what we should do for teen health. And you go to maybe eight classes a day, 42 minute periods, five minute passing period, maybe a 20 minute lunch, maybe a 10 minute break. This is not healthy. This is good for anybody, but particularly for kids, physical and mental health, this is not good. So we'll go in and we'll say to a school, let's take a look at your schedule. Let's see what you can do to make a healthier schedule for everybody, the adults in the school too. Uh, California has a late start uh, law that passed. Um, Part of our research went to help pass that law. Um, We would like all schools across the country to meet with what the Academy of Pediatrics is saying. If you're a high school student, you really shouldn't be in a school that starts before 830 in the morning. Right. Could not agree more. <laughs> so that's so we look at sort of structures and policies and practices. We look at how much homework is being given and if the kids think it's meaningful or purposeful. We look at um, do you have advisory or social emotional learning programs where students and adults can learn and talk to one another and get to know one another? Because we know one of the best things for mental health is if a student feels there's at least one adult they can go to at their school if they had a problem. And so you have to then forge relationships. So we talk about how to do that in classrooms through pedagogy. You need to be able to to feel comfortable and safe and bring your full identity to school. So, you know, what does that mean? Are are there people on your side or is there a history of racism um, or homophobia going on at your school? So we'll, we'll really look deeply at school culture, policies and practices and help them make changes. And we're, we're with them every step of the way as they come up with the change. And it's really important to have students involved in that, right? And ask the students and shadow the students, do what I did all those years ago and get them to weigh in because they're the ones living this problem. And they often know the best solutions for their own health and well-being. That is so amazing that you're actually engaging with the students and listening to them. Because in my experience of bringing two boys up through K through 12, that hasn't happened. Yeah. There's some parent engagement and parent, you know, feedback, but there's very little from the kids about what's working and what's not. Yeah. So I love that. That's the centerpiece of what we do. We we survey kids, we do fish bowls where the kids are talking and adults are listening on the outside. We do shadow days. We do I wish campaigns where they just fill out anonymously, I wish my parents knew, or I wish my teachers knew, or I wish my colleagues knew, right? Um it's really important to us that the students are heard and that they are have agency. Um, and we also know that good changes in schools are really hard to come by. If it was easy, it would have happened already. And so you need to get everyone on board. So part of the team that comes to work with us are kids, parents, counselors, teachers, administrators. Everyone needs to understand the research behind what we're doing, why we want to make the change, and really help sort of spread the word and and get the buy-in. Otherwise, it'll just, it won't work. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. 
So how how hard is it for a school to have you commit? Like, is there a waiting list? Do they just apply? What's the process? That's a great question. So if if your school is interested, yes, you 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 apply. Um, we it's not a very hard application. We basically just ask you, you know, what do you what do you think you need to work on, and and, and why are you coming, and do you have sort of the um, the buy-in? It's usually not good. Like if there's a new principal, we'll usually say wait a year. Right, because you need you need to have some experience leading, um, but we also so that's that's our school program. That's if you want to really kind of dig in, have our help, look at a problem, come to our workshops and conferences, take our survey, have a coach kind of with you every step of the way. We also do a lot of sort of standalone workshops, um, webinars for the public, parent education. Um, we write articles, we do podcasts like this, right? We're trying to get information out in any way we can around best practices because let's even just take sleep as an example. The parents have a lot of control over that. So we have schools that have turned to a later start time, but the kids are just staying up later because the parents aren't really with us and understanding the research behind what they should be doing or the importance. We, we just, um, in our surveys, I'll just give one more quick example, Betsy. No, no, we, keep Keep them coming. Surveys when we ask kids how much sleep they're getting, what time they're going to bed, what time they're getting up on weekends and weekdays, and if they have technology in their bedroom at night, there is a 30 minute difference of kids who have phones in their bedroom. They get 30 minutes less sleep than the many, many kids that we've surveyed who don't have phones in their bedroom. 30 minutes is a lot. And we I'm know, surprised it's only 30. I know. Well, remember, we're <laughs> serving thousands of kids. So it's, yeah, like, yeah. it's for some kids, it's probably way more. But on average, yeah. there's a 30-minute yeah. average. And we know that mental health and sleep directly correlate. Yeah. So those are we want to get that information out to parents. We want to say, hey, there is something real about technology in the bedroom. Go out and get an alarm clock. Really monitor what time your kids are going to bed. Make sure they're not downing caffeine at 8 p.m. at night. You know, that's just going to keep them up and um, and really work on family policies and practices, just like we help them work on school policies and practices. Yeah, I mean, it's common sense, but you're right. Uh, you know, uh, I'm going to be transparent here. My kids have had phones in their rooms since they were probably since they started high school. And and I knew I was I've also been super strict about bedtime. Yeah. They'll tell you that they never really liked me for that. But no, it's good. That's good. That. Yes. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I can see where, like I said, I can see where it's for many, probably more than 30 minutes. Yeah. Um, so high school and let's talk about high school now and college mm -hmm. or finding a college, because that that actually was how I had read and and seen you before, but you were you did a webinar with Kelly Corrigan about um, a fit over rankings, and I love the way you phrased that. And there's been so much in the news about it, and and lots of people talking about it. But your your conversation with Kelly was so good. I'm going to put that in the show notes too. But oh, good. Why college engagement matters more than selectivity. Mm -hmm. So. Mm -hmm. I know it's a big conversation, but can you maybe kind of give yes. a little bit of that? Yeah. So we we work with schools. We talk to them about you know all these pol policies and practices to help 
kids with their mental health and engagement with learning. And we realized that there was an elephant in the room. And that was everyone would say, oh, I want my kids to be healthy. The parents would say that the kids would be like, oh, yeah, I want to I want to be healthy. I want to feel um, excited and engaged in learning. But I need to get the grades. I need to do a million extracurricular activities. I need to do X, Y, Z in order to get into a good college. And we kept hearing this over and over again that we decided to spend a year looking at the research around if where you go to college really makes a difference in terms of how much you learn, in terms of how much you earn after college, in terms of health and well-being, future job satisfaction. And we dug in and we spent a year and we wrote this paper, which is free. Anyone can read it. And it has that double meaning to the title that you said, Betsy, right? A fit over rankings is people are having a fit over these rankings and they want to get into like the top ranked schools. But also we know from the research that it's really finding the right fit school that matters way more than the rankings. And that's for every kid that what you do at college and how you utilize that college is going to make a difference for what comes later, not how high it is ranked on the U.S. News and World Report or how selective it is, how many kids they turn away. And I think getting that word out that there's not 20 colleges or 50 colleges or 100 colleges in the U.S., there are 4,000 you know, colleges and universities that you can go to, to and really be a success story. I was talking to someone the other day who had no idea her kid was getting some B's and C's, and she said, I just want him to be able to get into college. And I said, oh my gosh, you realize that you don't even need a high school degree and you can go to community college and then transfer, right? But there's so many misconceptions that parents and kids have. We wanted to clear that up. Right. And I think parents, they have a mindset from when they went to college and then as time went on. And I think, I'm just going to say it, the, the people at US News and World Report are not doing anybody a favor. And as we're seeing some of these higher ed institutions are pulling out of those rankings, which good for them. Bravo. Everybody should. I mean, I constantly, when I talk to young people, constantly tell them, do not even look at that list. Look at colleges that change lives and talk to people. Talk to other parents who had, who have have or have had kids attend colleges you might, never, might not have even heard of. I'm helping my rising senior look at colleges now. I'm finding names of colleges I never even knew existed. I and love some it. of the some of them might actually be a really good fit. A hundred percent. And it's so great that you have an open mind and that your senior has an open mind because a lot of times it's the parents who say, Well, I never heard of that, so you can't you can't go there. You know, what's that? And sometimes it's the kids and it's peer pressure. And it's their peers saying, You're gonna go there. We never heard of that, you know, and then you're considered a failure, right? Yeah. So it's really, really important. And um and it causes, you know, in our in our surveys, we ask kids to, to name their top stressors. And college is often in the top three for our high school students. So what did the data show high level as far as success and, you know, better off in life? Did you did you measure that? So outcomes and well-being? You, you said that you did. Exactly. So so there's um, a really famous poll, the Gallup-Purdue poll, that for years and years and years has been, and this is in the paper, this is in the fit over rankings, for years has been looking at adult well-being. It's called a thriving scale. And what I like about the thriving scale is money, financial thriving is on there. So that's part of it. But there's also physical health, mental health, um, 
how connected to a community you feel, right? And they're and what they've done is they surveyed thousands and thousands of alums. And it turns out that where they went to school does not correlate with the thriving scale. You could go to community college and just stop there and be and score as highly on the thriving scale as someone who went to the top, top selective college in the United States and everything in between, right? So where you go to college does not correlate with future happiness, learning, success, job satisfaction, right? Thriving. Um, and that should, to me, I, we, we shout that from the rooftops because that should tell everyone it's okay. Take that stress off your shoulders. You can really, and particularly in the United States, particularly with parents maybe who didn't grow up in this country, you can reinvent yourself. You can go to community colleges, which are free, and you can work hard and you can transfer to a four-year college. Um, I'm not saying it's easy. And there are certainly people whose circumstances do not allow them that kind of freedom, right? They've got kids they've got to take care of. They've got to make money. Um, but for the vast majority of parents who are worried about where their kids are going, um, this should be a relief. This message should be a relief. Well, and unfortunately, this is the message that's not in the headlines and the stories that were being told across the news and across, you know, because obviously the elite and top institutions, they want everybody to want to go there, right? They yeah. want to increase their yield. They want to say how many be able to say how many people they turned away. Yeah. Um, so how do we how do we make that change? Yeah. How do we see it's a shift in it's really a shift in perspective, right? It is. And, and or mindset, I should say mindset. In mindset. And and I want to make I, I, there's one thing I do want to make clear. If you are a person of color or a first generation student to go to college, it may make a slight difference in your life to go somewhere where you will get a full ride, where you won't have to graduate with debt, where you will be exposed to a network maybe that you hadn't been exposed to before, where you will uh, be able to um, uh, get a job with some help of that career center and whatnot. So for a small group of students, um, it may make a difference to go to a more selective school. And there's a couple of studies in there that we talk about. But for the vast majority of the people who you, you know, you're talking to, um, it's really not going to make a difference. And how you then think about it is what does fit mean? What are you excited about? What are you interested in? Where do you want to live? Where do you want to study? What makes sense from your home situation, your financial situation? And there's a lot of really cool programs now um, out there where you won't have to even go to a specific four-year college, let's say, there, what we're starting to say are post alternative post-secondary options. Um, and I know like the, the Biden administration is, is trying to get the word out about this, right? That, that um, you might want to go right into trade school and become an electrician and make more money than me for sure. Right. So it, it yeah. just depends on what people really want and see themselves doing. And I think we have to really help educate kids early on to understand that. And I wish that was being done in high schools. The high schools I've interacted with anyway haven't really done that. Exactly. And that's one of the things we're trying to do when we do these workshops is to help them think about what can we do that will really help all kids understand the right path, the right post-secondary path. 
because there are so many now and you don't have to necessarily go into debt in order to make that happen. Does Challenge Success offer any kind of tools or resources for individual students to, for instance, go online and say, I don't even know all the paths available to me? Yeah, yeah. So we have on our website a college resource page that has some books. It has our um, our white paper, you know, our research brief. Sorry, we're not calling it white paper anymore. It has our <laughs> research brief um, on there. and And yet we're not that's at a certain level, right? So it'll help families understand the landscape. It'll help families understand that it's not about selectivity. It's about fit. If kids want to go deeper and really help find their own path, they have to then look towards some other resources, maybe some other books. What we're working with now in schools um, is to incorporate into some of their social emotional learning programs or their advisory curriculum or tutorial a lot of times the counselors will go in and they'll do like some career education. Um, but there are some really nice resources out there to help uh, sort of expand how that's been traditionally done. I think in the past, maybe they would give you, you know, one of those surveys or quizzes and find right. out what you're, I just remember taking one a long time ago in high school and I, I said I should be a nurse, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, but, you know, and it's not that far off from like a caring Right. Nurturing. Yeah. 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 But, but, um, but no, there's a lot more you can do even with this idea of finding what you're good at, what the world needs and what you can make money at that, that Japanese, um, Ikigai. Um, yes. Thank you. I was a good, yes. um, yep. and, and just even doing, even doing that as an exercise at home is mm -hmm. kind of useful to get kids thinking, but, but I am mindful that there is some privilege to be able to do that. And, um, and so what's right for every kid is really different. Um, and that's, it fits with challenge success, right? We're challenging. There's not one path to success. It's really allowing every kid to find their own authentic path to success. Oh, I love this work. I love this. I, I'm so, so glad that you're doing it and that you came to talk to me today. Is there any Anything we haven't covered or advice or or tips for parents as they help their teens kind of navigate this journey? Yeah, I so I, we have this little mnemonic aid, and you've probably heard me say this before, Betsy, um, called PDF. And PDF doesn't stand for portable document format. But if we, we looked at all the research around the Academy of Pediatrics and the Center for Disease Control and the Psychological Association around best practices, pr protective practices for teens... And we put them into these three buckets, playtime, downtime, and family time. And it turns out that every kid, I would say every person, but at least for the research, every kid needs PDF every day. So what does playtime look like for your teenager? What does downtime look like where you can't be running around like on a hamster wheel, right? The, the mm -hmm. whole time. What, what do, and that might be some video game playing, some social media. It might be reading for pleasure. It might be strumming on a guitar for fun, going out and shooting hoops for fun, right? Um, and family time. And family time is really, um, it can happen anytime, but ideally, according to the research, it's the primary unit is together for about 20, 25 minutes checking in, whether that's over a meal, whether that's over a family walk or a game or a service activity, right? There's lots of research around the benefits of all of those things for families, but it's protective because the kid 
feels like they are part of an unconditionally loved unit and that you have their back no matter what, even if they are not getting top grades or even if they're, you know, in a bad mood or surly or whatever, right? They know that there's a safe place to go. So every kid needs playtime, joy, fun, uh, engagement, right? Every kid needs some downtime, including sleep, right? Very, very important for mental health. And every kid needs to feel like they're part of this unit, this unconditionally loved unit where some adult has their back that they can go to with a problem. They can show you their flaws and all, and they can feel safe and loved. Um, so as a parent, you know, watch how you talk about things like grades and college. If the first thing you say when your kid walks in the door is, how'd you do on the history test? You're sending a message that that's the most important thing that could have happened to the kid that day. That's, that's not really what you feel as a parent. You want to make sure that they're a loving, kind human being and ethical and engaged and excited, right? So watch your messaging, um, use the resources on our website to help, uh, but keep in mind PDF every day, playtime, downtime, and family time. I'm going to start using that every single day, Good, even, even for myself. Yes, yes. <laughs> adults need it too, for sure. For sure. Uh, this is all so amazing. I I love all this stuff. So before we go, where can people find and follow you? And I will put all the links that you talked about and, and these as well in the show notes. Okay, great. Well, challengesuccess.org is the website. Lots and lots of resources for parents, for counselors, for school people, for kids even. Um, we are also pretty active on social media. So, um, you know, Facebook and Instagram and Twitter, you can find all of that information. Um, that's the best way to find our resources and pass them along. Tell a friend because it's going to take a lot of convincing to really make the changes that we're after. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for being here and for all of the great work you're doing and all of the information you shared. I'm really, really grateful. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me. I'd like to thank my guest, Dr. Denise Pope, for spending time with me. I so admire and appreciate the work that she is doing. I wish that Challenge Success could be a fixture in every school K-12 through throughout our country. It's no secret that the mental health and well-being of students continues to decline. The artificial and unreasonable expectations placed on teens and young adults have got to stop. Our kids deserve better. If you work in education or you have a current student in grades K through 12, I challenge you to visit the Challenge Success website and identify one thing that you can do or that you can propose to your child's educators to change the status quo. Big change can come from small steps. Believe that and take action. We owe it to our kids. Thanks so much for tuning in today. I'm so grateful that you took the time to listen. Please share this podcast with someone who will find it helpful. Be sure and check out the show notes at highschoolhamsterwheel.com, where I will include all the links mentioned during this episode. And one more thing. If you know of a young adult who could use some help building confidence, gaining clarity, exploring careers, identifying a path forward, or finding a job, I would love to help. Visit my website, BetsyJewelCoaching.com, and sign up for a free 30-minute discovery call. That's it for today. I'll be back soon with another episode of the High School Hamster Wheel Podcast.
Anne-Marie Kelly. Wild Precious Life is a podcast about dreaming big, digging in and connecting across distance, division, and loss. In each episode, I talk with prize-winning writers, musicians, and wanderers who remind all of us how we can make the most of the time we have. So meet me here. Let's walk and talk and dream and discover what it means to be wild, precious, and brave. 